Kick it, Dick. Good afternoon. My name is Fred H., and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And uh, it's certainly wonderful to be back. I am going to put these two sheets, one with the problem and one being the solution, um, up on the on the cover up this wonderful watercolor by Susan Kays, I think it is. But to let you know, I've got this hanging in my office, and I, um, at one point in my opinion about the 12 and 12, put a little post-it up there that said, and as you, uh, for those of you on the video, or video, <laughs> for those of you on the tape, um, I'm pointing to a watercolor of, uh, what is that, a lily? And a cup of coffee and a big book open to the three-column inventory. That would be 64 and 65 um, on a desk, sunlight, painting, and then a 12 and 12 holding the big book open. And my little post-it said, proper use of the 12 and 12 when doing a big book four-step. <laughs> I could not have been more wrong. I probably couldn't have been more cute, but I couldn't have been more wrong. So... Um, I'm going to cover that up now, but that is improper use of the 12 and 12 because what the 12 and 12 does that Bill was not able to do or chose not to do when he gave us the instructions for the Big Book four-step was expand upon the third column, elements, parts of self-affected. Um, I, I got totally jammed up at the time. What the hell are these guys talking about? Uh, when they talks about parts of self-affected and, and where did they get these strings of, of, you know, personal relationships, sex, all that stuff. I mean, it just made no sense to me. And that is made clear, much more clear um, in the 12 and 12. So I think there's a clear example of how the 12, and, the 12 by broadens and deepens my understanding of the four-step process. So I'm going to put this microphone down because I'm going to need both hands. Understanding what our spiritual malady is, is understanding, boy, I hope they could hear some of that, um, is understanding this concept of over-reliance on self that's, uh, that's characterized unquestionably on pages 60 to 64 in the big book and actually turns out to be, I think, some of the most powerful step one information disclosed in the segment of the book on steps three and four. So the problem of can't use, can't quit, on my own, can't change, leads me to understanding the solution of spirituality. The problem character, and I've drawn circles in this lower half of each page, the self and spirit proportion in the problem is self dominates spirit. In other words, it's much, much more about me than it is about my spirituality in the problem character. And this circle represents our character. I think our character is has elements in the world, but not elements, but elements not of the world. That human spirit well, what do they call us? Human beings. Our humanness is in the world. Our beingness is not of the world. It's a nice context to look at that word in. We are human beings. There's humanness and there's beingness. So the problem is that over-reliance on self essentially walls in my natural spirituality. Thank you, Neil. Over-reliance on self walls in. You know, we always thought that we were blocked from God. I think a more accurate description of that is we walled God in through over-reliance on self because as it's said so clearly on page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So the problem proportion of our character is over-reliance on self at the expense of spirit and then in the solution character, self is reduced so that spirit can shine. 
And I find no better visuals to kind of capture the whole 12-step path uh, than basically this. Step one defines the problem. Step two defines the solution. Step three is the decision to seek the solution while I'm still spiritually sick, just beginning to recognize the level of over-reliance on self and everything that means. Steps four through nine deliver me to the solution. And steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me living in the solution. That's basically an overview of how I think the design for living works through the directions and information in the Roman numerals in the first 103 pages of the book. Step one informs me about what's wrong with me and gives meaning to my struggle. Step two lets me know, based on what's wrong with me, what needs to be right with me, like the treatment plan in a, in a, in a hospital is based on the diagnosis. Well, step one is the medical diagnosis. Step two is the medical treatment plan based on the problem. Step three is my decision to go to the hospital and submit to the treatment plan. But even though I know what's wrong with me, just like Bill for a year and a half still drank, knowing, knowing what was wrong with him, and then knowing what the solution is, like being in the doctor's office and being told I have pneumonia, and then deciding to go to the hospital, I'm still sicker than ever. I have to go to the hospital and submit to the treatment plan, follow the directions of the treatment plan before I start to get well. So 4 through 9 get me well, and 10, 11, and 12 keep me well. So another way that I summarize that, just because I think this overview helps, as Joe McQuainy said so clearly, you don't need to know the sequence of this to experience it, its healing power. You just need to be willing to follow directions. But to help somebody else, you need to know the sequence. And typically in the old days, the kind of sponsorship that grew AA, um, the old-timer would share the spiritual directions. Back then there were six steps, five from the Oxford groups and, and complete defeat um, that would transform them. And that was the nature of sponsorship back then. The old-timer shared the directions with the newcomer. The newcomer had a spiritual awakening, and then they became an old-timer, and their opportunity then was to do that service. So steps one, two, and three prepare me, but they don't get me well. Steps four through nine get me well, but they don't keep me well. Steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me well. That's the whole package. Our work is never done. 10, 11, and 12 define a way of life that Bill was emphasizing through uh, all of his writings in the 12 and 12. So, any questions about that? Sure. Steps one, two, and three prepare me, but they don't get me well. Steps four through nine get me well, but they don't keep me well. Steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me well. Now, there are several large rest areas on the road of happy destiny full of illegal AA campers. <laughs> and one of them is rest area step three. An effect, sometimes a great one, was felt at once. And look what happened to Jim on page 35. We told him on his 12-step call what we knew of alcoholism, step one, and the answer we had found, step two. He made a beginning, step three. He, um, his family was restored, and he got a business selling cars in an automobile dealership he used to own. That's what he got out of step three. He got to go back home again, and he had the humility to sell cars in an automobile dealership he used to own. Can't you see it now? Who's the new guy? Oh, it's the former owner. He hasn't sold a thing all week. That's true. That's like halfway house, sober house recovery job. When I worked at Hazel in New York. We'd say, you need to go out and, and get a job. And someone said, oh, good. I've always wanted to produce a movie, and now that I'm in New York... And they're in a halfway house. But we were talking more like stocking bookshelves at Barnes & Noble in Union Square. So, humility. So, all went well for a time on his third step effect, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. He failed to do steps four through nine. So, there's a big rest area at step three, a lot of three-steppers. 
big rest area at step nine because nine is a huge bolus of the laurels of recovery. And we're reminded in the instructions for step 10 that we continue this way of life as we cleaned up the past. You're not done yet. You got those famous promises halfway through the nine step and they still need to be completed. So uh, that's another large rest area. But uh, one, two, and three prepare me, but they don't get me well. Four through nine get me well, but they don't keep me well. 10, 11, and 12 keep me well. Now, the step one and step two elements I wanted to highlight in the 12 and 12 by, because I'm not talking about the traditions, maybe next year. Um, on step one and step two, as I've already mentioned, are pretty powerful. And I want to go over again that page 21, line two, every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. And boy, did that add a dimension to my appreciating how sick I was before I started getting help. Not only, you know, people talk about this being a disease of denial, which I think is inaccurate. I don't like the, the phrase in my field of a drug of choice because that's a lie. It's a drug of no choice. And I don't like the emphasis on the use of the word denial because I don't think this is a disease of denial. I think it's a disease of ignorance. I don't think you can deny something that you don't know, and that's the problem. I think we don't know what's wrong with us. Uh, denial is a built-in human emotional safety valve so that we don't see the overpowering dimension of something that's really wrong all at once. And what we can deny is how bad things are getting in our lives. But the disease isn't of denial. The disease is of ignorance. And so it's so important to inform the newcomer of what's wrong with them. And that's exactly what step one in the 12 and 12 emphasizes be done. I want to just quickly go through reading the adjectives and adverbs, probably mostly adjectives, that the 12 and 12 uses. And I'm not going to refer the lines, but this is just something in terms of step one's truth being a hopeless condition, can't use safely, can't not do it again, on my own, can't do anything about it. Uh, here are some of the terms used in the chapter on step one. Complete defeat, personal powerlessness, absolute humiliation, utter defeat, devastating weakness and all its consequences. Complete defeat, defeat, Mental obsession, compulsion, well, we'll get to that. Dilemma, ultimately destroy ourselves. Most desperate, unpalatable truth, last gaspers, hopeless. Low bottom cases, hopelessness, literal hell, fatal progression. Hit bottom, hit bottom, hit bottom. Lash of alcoholism fatal nature of our situation. Whew. Once more, hopeless condition. So even at a subliminal language level, Bill's driving home the, this simple ultimate truth of can't use, safely can't quit, and on our own can't do anything about it. Um, another element of what the 12 and 12 is feeding me with now is a very good script. And I think this is kind of a third element. It's all about what's beyond getting abstinent. It's all about the instincts. And it's all about some simple coaching for us as sponsors. And here's the language on page 22 that fairly reflects the nature of the problem at the level of the body and the mind. When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. 
Then we had been told that so far as alcohol is concerned, self-confidence was no good whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared, and this is how the book says it, said, so I, I, I said, file this away for use with newcomers. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession. Sound familiar? So subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol and allergy, they called it. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword, two-pronged illness at this point, over us. We're not going to hit them with the spiritual malady early on because they're not going to buy They're going They're just going to be pushed away. That condemned us to go on drinking. And then, let's see, a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge, illness of the mind, that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. Few indeed were those who so assailed and have ever won through in single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources. And this had been true apparently ever since people had first crushed grapes. So again, um, some pretty clear language to instruct the old-timer on the language that would have meaning for the newcomer. The next thing that the 12 and 12 highlights is that originally many of the members and the stories in the first edition were what they call last gaspers. And I think I made it up, but I think back in the old days, if you didn't look pretty, you know, when they went around to institutions and clergy and, and hospitals looking for people, they wanted the people who were really tapped out. Why do you think that was? Why do you think they wanted the people who were in the worst throes of their alcoholism? Because maybe they'd be ready, because the problem defines the solution, and that misery uh, can create that openness. So in they say it is a tremendous satisfaction, and this is information that Bill obviously couldn't have had when the big book was written, to record that in the following years, <coughs> this changed. Alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. Since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could such people as these take this step? And so he goes on to describe um, essentially the element of raising the bottoms in our own stories to go back and say, you know, I, re I recognize that actually in a personal sharing, I, my, I lost control of alcohol the very first time I drank. I think I probably intended to get drunk, but I probably didn't intend to get as drunk as I did. And I remember I had a kid whose friend, whose parents would buy us beer. And we could drink in their house, and we were limited to a six-pack. And I would always drink my six-pack, and the other guys would have two or three left over, and I'd drink theirs. And they were forcing coffee down me, like this was in the eighth grade, um, before I drove home in Great Falls, Montana, where I still love to read on the Great Falls Tribune website, you know, seven killed in fiery crash at 4 a.m. in the morning up near Bab. Um, it's, it's a meat market uh, driving. And, and Montana used to not have a, a, uh, a speed limit. It does now. I think it's 85. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is a powerful statement. It was then discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another alcoholic, of another, the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. When one alcoholic plants in the mind of another the true nature of, this, of his malady, and this is the true nature of his malady, they just reviewed it on the previous page, 
The person could never be the same again. And that's exactly what happened in Fred's story in More About Alcoholism, the last one. It's on pages 39 to 42. And, you know, we first met Fred in a hospital, that story uh, um, where he had gone to rest his nerves. And then Joe and Charlie talk about seeing people who were really just nerve resters, kind of come to treatment to get their strength back and get their act together, and then they go out and do it again. Well, Fred, they tell Fred about this, and, and Fred works on step one from page 39 to page 42. And he's constantly, and every time he goes out, he learns something more because he says, I started to think about what those fellows had said. And he was now seeing his alcoholism in the context of the truth of its symptoms. No better teacher than the experience. This happens to ultimately be true with God as well. Um, Under the lash of alcoholism, what gets us to help, we are driven to AA, and there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. We find out what's wrong with us. Then and only then do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen, open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as only the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. The problem of hopelessness delivers us to the gift of despair of willingness. Now, the, the second chapter in the 12 and 12 on step two interestingly enough, has a number of scenarios of essentially four profiles of these higher bottom alcoholics who aren't driven to that sense of surrender because they were a higher bottom drunk. There's a real connection between the higher bottom drunk doesn't necessarily come into the meetings as willing as the low-bottom drunk. Um, and so he characterizes four cases. Uh, let's look at first at the case of the one who says he won't believe, the belligerent one. Case number two. Consider the next plight of those who once had faith but have lost it. Case number three. Now we come to another kind of problem, the intellectually self-sufficient man or woman. Thank you for the political correctness of that. And I obviously don't know this book as well as I know the big book. Case number four. Now let's take the guy full of faith, but still reeking of alcohol. And that comes down to a matter of quantity versus quality of faith. Um, it also states at the back, uh, at the, in the last paragraph on page 33, I think an interesting new element of the fellowship, the feeling of having shared in a common peril. In the last paragraph of step two in the 12 and 12, it says, therefore, step two is the rallying point for all of us. Whether agnostic, atheist, or former believer, we can stand together on this step. True humility and an open mind, true humility, step one, and an open mind, step two, can lead us to faith, and every AA meeting is an assurance can lead us to faith, steps 3 through 12. And every AA meeting is an assurance that God will restore us to sanity if we rightly relate ourselves to God. Follow the rest of the steps. So now let's move on to essentially a topic related to step 3. Coming to understanding the statement, our will in our lives. Now, the first thing I want to do 
is talk about a little bit, just briefly, about brain chemistry. And Dr. Silkworth, as I mentioned, saw craving as a phenomena, and he would be very interested in reading all of the current research that is being done on these pleasure centers, subconscious levels of our brain, and the role of dopamine in these, in these pleasure centers. And this first started to make sense to me when, as I mentioned earlier, a doctor I was presenting with said the first time we use the drug of a no choice, we get a supra-physiologic dose reward of dopamine unprecedented in our brain chemistry histories, and we never forget it, and we often pursue it. And I, I think that's probably so true for crack cocaine as well. I mean, God, the first experience, I've never used it, but I get a lot of reports on, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of alcoholics become even more sadly sick, uh, winding up finding crack cocaine. Um, <clears throat> but this is the, part, of the, part of the wisdom of this brain chemistry is they call it the hijacked brain. And our brain chemistry gets hijacked by these drugs. And the basic proposal that I want to make is that our instincts, which is what we're going to start talking about, this constellation of instincts, this handout, the one handout you have, um, is really tied into our brain chemistry in every one of us through, through pleasure. And that when I, um, when I have money in my pocket, the good feeling I have about that is the dopamine in my brain with that instinct for material security being met. And when I don't have money in my pocket, I have a yearning, a craving, an appetite for that. These instincts shape and drive our lives in certain areas through this brain chemistry. We cannot avoid it. It's built into every one of us. And Bill makes that clear when he talks about these things on page 64. But it's a, it's a different thing to talk about brain chemistry and instincts, but actually they're the same thing. Our instincts are a built-in constellation of appetites and dopamine dose rewards when they're met of certain things, and ultimately they all account for our survival. And whether you consider these instincts to be God-given 6,000 years ago or evolutionarily developed through survival of the fittest, it doesn't make any difference. They're there. We don't have to get into creationism debates or anything or evolution debates here. They're there. So I want to start with what Ernest Kurtz mentions in his AA History, Not God. <clears throat> Bill discovered a basic um, truth <clears throat> that he talks a lot about in the 12 and 12, that strength comes out of weakness. That by admitting powerlessness, we are able to gain power. And essentially by admitting powerlessness of the truth of our lives, we're able to be in a position where we can access this power. Three key elements rapidly tumbled forth from this stark realization of the essence of the condition of the recovering alcoholic. And this is Ernest Kurtz's summary of what the 12 and 12 is all about. The character and role of instincts, the exact nature of the danger in demand, and the special pitfall for the alcoholic of the contradictory two-pronged quest for dependence and independence. We'll talk more about those things. In his discussions of instincts, Bill Wilson usually listed the basic human passionate cravings as security, sex, and society. Wary more of repetition than alliteration, he at times substituted to eat, to reproduce, to be somebody, or money, romance, companionship, and prestige. That's the core list, the three main categories, social, security, and sex. Now, in 
Joe McQuaney's comprehensive treatment plan based on the big book, Recovery Dynamics, which has client materials and counselor materials and this counselor's manual. There was a tremendous gathering together of all of the different ways that instincts have been talked about. And even in the big book, you know, it talks about, it gives you a couple of lists for column number three, but they're not the same lists. So what Joe's group did was that they looked at everything, everything that was in the 12 and 12, everything that was in the big book, and they came up with the list of things that I've included as your handout. And note very importantly, the um, uh, noting where this information comes from in the bottom uh, footer, these categories are gleaned from Recovery Dynamics Counselor Manual, second edition, copyright 1989, by the Kelly Foundation. 2500 South Broadway, Little Rock, Arkansas, 72211. And I also want to mention that one of the first workshops here next year is Larry Gaines and Bob Jorgensen. Um, and it was going to be Joe by Joe McQuaney by um, satellite feed, but now it'll have to be a very special satellite feed. Um, doing a, uh, a weekend seminar here on the instincts. Um, so that's the continuation of Joe's work that had been so important in triggering my interest and investigation of the instincts. But here are the three categories, the three parts of self, they call it. Social instinct, security instinct, sex instinct. Now, to bring a little more clarity to this, it says the social instinct is to care about others and ourselves. We all have an instinct, an appetite, a desire, a drive, a tendency towards caring about others and ourselves. And the five categories of social instinct that I think uh, this is the best list I've ever seen. And by the way, this is your column three in a big book four-step, parts of self-affected. You won't find, I don't think, please send me a better one. I don't think you'll find a better one. Five areas under social instinct that compromise it, that make it up. Companionship, a natural desire to belong or to be accepted. Think of yourself in junior high. This instinct is pretty huge. A natural desire to belong or to be accepted. Prestige, a natural desire to be recognized or accepted as a leader. Sometimes it seems like these are cut kind of thinly. But in my personal experience, um, having these as a list of helping me understand my behavior is priceless. Third area under social instincts, self-esteem, a natural desire for positive self-regard. Fourth, pride, a natural desire to be thought of positively by others. And I think in, in Joe and Charlie's work, they talk about self-esteem is what I think of me and pride is what I think others think of me. And again, fancied or real, uh, you know, we make up a lot of stuff, and we think we're dealing with, with real life, but uh, we make a lot of it up. Um, so self-esteem is what I think of myself. Pride is what I think others think, and both are tied to these drives for a natural desire for positive self-regard and a natural desire to be thought of positively by others. And then the fifth one, personal relationships, a natural desire for relationships with others and the world around us. So ponder these. I mean, keep this list or do whatever you want with this list. But um, I keep it close to my big book because in doing my inventories moment to moment during the day, uh, my 10th step spot checks, um, that's another 12 and 12 reference, um, these are vital dynamics in my life today. Always will be. They were way back when. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that each instinct has ambitions for the above to be fulfilled in the future. So it's not just feeling good about me now. There's an ambition for me to feel good about me, planning to feel good about me in the future. So this list is actually twice as long as it appears if you consider that for every instinct, it has its application in real time, but also in the future. 
The second main heading, security instinct, after the social instinct that has five subheadings, the security instinct is driven by fear for our survival. Healthy fear is good. You don't want to get rid of fear. Fear is a critical communication that comes from something deeper within me that I pay attention to something. And when the Bengal tiger is coming at me, I better have fear and have the, um, the adrenaline to jump up into the rafters and, and escape. However, I don't need to sit here today, stand here today, and be fearful of a Bengal tiger. So there's healthy fear, and then there's unhealthy fear, and that all becomes even clearer as we continue. Now, so fear is the way that my security instinct communicates to me for my survival. There are two forms of security instinct, a natural desire to be secure materially through money, property, possessions, etc., and a natural desire to be secure emotionally through two kinds of relationships, dominance and dependence. And that's a little bit of a clarification of um, Ernest Kurtz's third element here, the pitfall for the alcoholic of the contradictory two-pronged quest for both dominance and in dependence and independence. So mothers feel secure in dominating, having a dominant relationship with their toddlers, which is a critical element of that, that when they start running out into the street, you grab their arm and dominate their lives. No, we're not going to do that because they need that protection. So a dominance, emotional security, is an important instinct in a parent. However, a busy mother or a busy father needs some dependence for emotional security as well, some little time for me and a little time to be vulnerable, that kind of stuff. So again, these, these dynamics are very powerfully asking to be demonstrated in our lives. Material security through money, possessions, etc., and emotional security either met through dominance of others or dependence on others. And again, ambitions for, for all of those. And then the third general category uh, is the sex instinct, our unique ability to choose. And I love what Recovery Dynamics talks about sex. They talk about unique in all of the species on the earth, humans choose when they have sex. All other species, nature decides when they have sex. The female of a species comes into heat, that triggers the male. It comes in a particular season. That's generally timed with, you know, either hibernation or whatever it might be. But in nature, sex is determined by God. In us, again, we got this gift of free will. We get to choose. So in other words, animals don't have sex problems the way we have sex problems. Two areas to look at in terms of the sex drive, acceptable sex and hidden sex. And I know as a professional, the advent of cocaine, crack cocaine, is a tremendous stimulation of sexual urges associated with some of those drugs. But it, it doesn't come to fruition. And so there, there, can, there can be this kind of whacked out, private, hidden sex life that people have uh, that they would probably never talk about. And I remember working at a, at a treatment program and talking to somebody who didn't want to go on to the next level of care. And they lived uh, back on the East Coast. And they didn't want to stay out in Minnesota for a while. And I'd just been to a seminar on what cocaine addiction can do for someone's sex life sex activity. And so applying this new knowledge, and this is just fate, you know, call it God, call it whatever you want, but I asked him, I said, well, I see your drug of choice is cocaine. Uh, anything in particular back on the East Coast that you feel you want to get back to 
that's keeping you from going? And he said, how'd you know? And it was this, you know, I don't know, circus contraptions or something. I have no idea what the whole thing was. But it was a hidden sex life, a sex life he couldn't talk about out in the open. And I think if we don't look at both acceptable and hidden sex, we're missing often where the real problem lies uh, in the hidden sex. With the advent of, of the Internet, and you don't have to go down to the marginal parts of town now to the sex stores to, or video, sex video stores. You can get it all online. And there's been a huge explosion of online um, sex activity triggering a lot of online sex addiction that sex addicts and sex and love addicts anonymous programs are seeing. So keep in mind three basic areas of instincts. Social, to care about others and ourselves. Security, driven by fear for our survival. And sex, our unique ability to choose and all of those differing areas underneath. Now, when we start to look at what is talked about in the 12 and 12 on page 42. This whole thing really comes alive for me. And essentially what Bill is explaining on page 42 is that our character defects are this great gift of the profile of our human instincts exceeding their proper function or falling short of their proper function. And if they exceed them, they're called character defects. If, they're, if there's not enough, they call them shortcomings. But not enough of it or too much of it defines our character defects, defines the essence of our human struggle. So creation gave us instincts for a purpose in the 12 by, page 42. Without instincts, we wouldn't be complete human beings. If men and women didn't exert themselves to be secure in their persons, emotional security, made no effort to harvest food or construct shelter, material security, there would be no survival. Security is for our survival. If they didn't reproduce sex instinct, the earth wouldn't be populated. If there were no social instinct, so he's listed all three now. If men and women cared nothing for the society of one another, there would be no society. So the social instinct feeds our having societies. And, and villages were far more uh, able to, to support populations than roaming tribes and, and cities now. These are all driven by social instincts. So these desires for the sex relation, for material and emotional security, and for companionship, another social instinct, are perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. These are, these are the coolest things we get as human beings. This constellation of built-in <laughs> desires, built into our brain chemistry, that give us fulfilling societies, fulfilling relationships, fulfilling adequate stores of things we need, and that we can basically feel secure through relationships. Yet, now yet is one of the words that is a, a but undercover agent. The big book uses the word but quite a bit, and I've always been taught that you want to be careful to, to read closely when the book says but, because what follows it is a warning. And then as a student of words, I realizing there are a lot of other warning words out there. And so there are five or six others that I often quote in addition to but, yet, though, still, however, and on the other hand. They all mean the same thing. They're reversing words. So our instincts are certainly necessary and right and surely God-given. Yet, eh, wait a minute, these instincts, so necessary for our survival, for our existence, 
often far exceed their proper functions. Now I know how this happened. Now I know how I got over-reliant on self. In other words, I got over-reliant on meeting my own human instincts. And I want to share some of the most powerful information that Marion ever shared with me. And again, oh, by the way, We're in the World But Not Of It is out of a book called um, What is it? How do you say it? Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Otherwise, the Bible. Um, and the addresses are, are the noted scriptures. Uh, that, that phrase is in the big book. And I, I mean, that's in the big, big book. And I don't know if that's where Marion got it. She was a student of, of a lot of different wisdom traditions. So what Marion used to say, and it helped me not shame myself when I read page 62, which is where, again, this over-reliance on self is talked about in the big book. There's a point in there where it says the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though they usually don't think so. And, and the power of that, how that's written, is, is, I think, unfathomable for me. Extreme example of self-will run riot, and I don't have a clue. And that's really a statement of how sick I got. I was an extreme example of self-will run riot, and it's the last thing I ever had an idea about. I'm a lot weller today because I'm still an extreme example of self-will run riot, but I know it. That's starting to get well. That's actually the point at which we get well. That's when we realize how sick we are. But that dimension of that statement was initially only shaming for me because it's all about that selfishness, self-centeredness that we think is the root of all our troubles. And that, that's a very kind of almost abusive page in terms of its language. If you're sitting there without too much immune system to uh, criticism. But what Marion said made it all very understandable. She said that many people who eventually qualify for some 12-step organization before the age of 10 because of a problem in a relationship with one or both parents or another figure of authority wind up feeling a sense of disconnect from the people who are supposed to be taking care of them and they wind up thinking that they're going to have to take care of life on their own. And it's a powerful experience for me to realize that that's exactly where I was as a kid. I was out there. Now, my dad was never around, and there's a New York psychiatrist named Dr. Stanley Gitlow who says that there were three things common to many of his 30-year people in his 30 years of practice of addiction psychiatry. And the three elements he talked about were, one, they didn't have a strong, a healthy relationship with a same-sex parent. Two, they were stimulus augmenters. You pay a lot of money uh, to hear, uh, you know, I paid a lot of money to hear that I was a stimulus augmenter when I knew I was oversensitive all the time. Same thing. And three, they had early access to alcohol or drugs. Or some form of maladaptive relationship with people, places, and things that helped them fill up the whole the size of God in themselves. And so, guy from New Hampshire used to come down and speak at at the farm on Saturday night, and he said that our spiritual malady is a hole inside of us the size of God, that we try to fill up with all sorts of people, places, and things, and it doesn't get the job done. Now, with Bill finally explaining that my character defects are these good things inside of me gone astray, I can revisit this and not feel shamed at all. Over-reliance on self was what I had to do as a kid for my own emotional survival because even though I wasn't raised in an abusive family, I felt disconnected. 
completely disconnected. And the only thing I had to fill up that hole, which ideally would have been filled up, you know, here's me, here's the family. Our dog is healthy because Blue lives in the context of a pack. Cesar Milan on the Dog Whisperer is going into families where the dog's running the show. It's not the dog's fault. The dog's instinct is to be alpha. But if that isn't made clear that they're not the alpha, if the dog in some way is meeting an unmet need in the owner, and you know the owners are always the one crying after five minutes, and they've got somebody who sees it perfectly clearly sitting right next to them blowing the whistle on them, Oh, she never disciplines the dog. She thinks it's her baby. And then the woman goes on to say, well, I lost a baby. And this dog represents that need to nurture. I mean, all of these things make sense. Dogs are healthy if they live their right packness. And in a sense, we are in God's pack. My malady is thinking that I'm the alpha in God's pack. How does that work out for me? <laughs> I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. And I have to live my proper context. So this whole start on page 60 in the big book, first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Begins this understanding of my spiritual malady is over-reliance on self. And then the information that this over-reliance on self is really over-reliance on my own instincts. And then this deeper information from the 12 by that my trouble is that I demand that my instincts be met in the world. And that demanding is what gets me into trouble. I dominate and that's what gets me into trouble. I'm calling the shots. And so the third step elements on pages 60 to 64 culminate in this statement of our spiritual malady, which has been explained in the previous pages. Over-reliance on self is the issue. It isn't always that ugly self-centeredness. And I think because women are from Venus and men are from Mars, that women often can't relate very well to pages 60 to 64 because the nature of a woman's over-reliance on her instincts is very different than the nature of a man's over-reliance on his instincts because our instincts are very different. And one of the biggest differences is that women's instincts are far more nurturing. And so there is good language for women on understanding why you can't relate to page 62, but maybe you can relate to the bottom of page 60 and the top of page 61. And let me highlight the phrases that I think are much more applicable to women's over-reliance on self than men's. Bottom paragraph, page 60, big book. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. That's the first reference to self that is constantly repeated over the next four pages. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. And that's the first one that's far more a feminine form of over-reliance on self than male. Your motives are good. Charlotte Castle, in A Woman's Way Through the Twelve Steps, talks about it's no mystery why, um, say, a woman who's an abuse victim Everybody's critical when she pulls the restraining order from the guy who just beat her up. But her motives are good because what did she see? He got remorseful. I'll never do that again. I'm sorry. And man, Paige and I saw this movie called Waitress. And part of it was so powerful because the, the, this main character lived with an abusive boyfriend. And the extremes of his abuse and the extremes of his emotional dependence and remorse were almost like unbelievable. But your motives are good. 
Most people like to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in their own way. If their arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as they wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including themselves, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor, may, our, our woman, may sometimes be quite virtuous. Motives are good. Quite virtuous. They may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, and even modest or self-sacrificing. Now, you wouldn't think that those are terms used to describe self-centeredness. But in women, over-reliance on self is over-reliance on those nurturing instincts, so it becomes a nurturing disease. And it isn't uncommon for alcoholic women to have been untreated codependents beforehand and then sought the chemical relief of alcohol to, to help get some pleasure in life that was being ground up by giving away all the fruit on their tree and then cutting up their branches and trunk for firewood to give away, to take the metaphor even more extensively. On the other hand, they may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> but as with most humans, they are more likely to have varied traits. We all have varied traits. All I'm saying is that I think women have more varied traits into those nurturing kinds of descriptive words. Men have varying traits more into the more page 62, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, that we think is the root of our trouble. Does this make any sense? Is it helpful? It's all the same thing. It's over-reliance on self. And the interesting part is that nobody wants an untreated codependent to stop doing that because you're taking care of so many people. It's a lot more insidious way to get sick with that nurturing disease. Yet, there is great relief for all of us in this path that delivers us from a variety of different ways that this can look, this left side of the equation, this problem side, this problem character, this spiritual unfitness, to this side. And sometimes I, I'm concerned about you know, a woman recovering from codependency, reading the big book, when she might read something like what Bill says on page 14, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge their spiritual lives through work and self-sacrifice for others. Well, that's just a coda binge. That's a coda kegger. <laughs> so there's a very fine line that I think, um, a finer line that women need to, um, to be aware of in the service part of 12-step recovery. Uh, that it not foster that imbalance of nurturing over-reliance. So, yes. Yes, right. And all of our adages um, reflect our instincts. Pride goeth before the fall. Um, this is this is this is good stuff. This is stuff that um, I would have never wound up being interested in, much less excited about, had I not been given the disease of alcoholism. And when Joe says, "If I wouldn't have been an alcoholic, I probably wouldn't have amounted to much," I can't say how absolutely true that is for me, because of the gift of step one of willingness to get an open view, to be a little bit more open-minded on things in step two, and then to witness this coming around. So, we're okay? Easy 10, okay.
So made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them. The words in the summary of step three, the directions of which are on pages 60 to 63. Um, our will is essentially free will. Now, we talk about self-will being a problem. Self-will is free will in the service of self. Free will is not our problem. Free will is our great gift. Free will is what my dog doesn't have. She can't wake up in the morning and be anything but a dog. I can wake up in the morning and be all sorts of weird things. I think today I'll be a cowboy and I'll put on my cowboy costume. There's great freedom in free will. There is great risk in free will. And another way of talking about our spiritual malady is talking about misuse of our free will. My spiritual malady is my misuse of my free will. And that's what all wisdom traditions do. They give me some directions for my free will. Because on my own, I'll think it's all about me. Anybody else in here have the all about me disease? It's amazing. So to understand that self-will is what I need to work on, and it's very different than free will, because free will is my great gift. Self-will is free will in the service of self. Right living, recovery, is free will in the service of spirit, of God and others. And there's plenty of joy in even a modicum of my aiming my life to serve God and others. Progress, not perfection. So, I have now graduated from an alcohol and drug problem that got my attention through great depths of misery to a living problem characterized by over-reliance on self. And in step three, what I'm asked to do is to turn my will, which is my directions. If you write a will, you essentially go to a lawyer, a neutral third legal party, who's going to write down your directions. Last will and testament. Last directions and testament. So when I turn my will, I'm turning my directions. And life, the result of those directions... to a larger context that's already a part of who I am. And for me, that makes it a lot simpler. Just simply the idea that I am going to essentially decide to seek the solution. And my favorite version of step three is on page 42 in the big book. And it's Fred who finally gets step one. He gets step one in the last sentence of the paragraph that ends in the middle of the page. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. This process of getting the crap kicked out of him every time he went out and tried to not drink on his own Last sentence, middle paragraph, page 42. Snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself, step one. Then they outlined on a 12-step call the spiritual answer, step two, and program of action, steps four through nine, which a 100 of them had followed successfully. He's got one, two, and four through nine. What's missing? Three. Last sentence in that paragraph. Starts with a warning word, but the moment I made up my mind, step three, decision, to go through with the process, steps four through nine, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved as in fact it proved to be. An effect, sometimes a great one, was felt at once when we did this third step, and here's his example. He had the curious feeling that his alcoholic condition 
was relieved as later on it proved to be. And his decision was to do step four. So when I have a sponsee who doesn't like to talk about God, who doesn't have any kind of relationship with God, we do the third step right there. It's a decision to do step four, which is a decision to get on the path of action that will deliver me to this. And the other thing I'd like to close this segment with is the God of my understanding comes from the problem side. The God of my understanding. That's God in the context of me. So if people want to tell me about the God of their understanding, it makes for some interesting discussions and there's great books about it. And, and However, I just say let's, from the motivation you have from not wanting to die or live in the misery that you've been in, let's follow certain, certain directions, simple directions, and then you tell me about the God of your experience. And that's what this program is about, the God of our experience. And that's what the step two, the whole flavor of the step two portion of, of, of the 12 and 12 is just keep an open mind. Hang in there. Almost like a James Fry. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It'll happen to you if you continue to do these things. And I'd, it, it's such a joy to have sponsees call me and tell me about the God of their experience because they're the, the awe and wonder stuff, the, uh, uh, the stuff that comes right out of left field. And uh, it's always a natural byproduct of this. Okay. Uh, let's head back here at 2.30, and we'll continue.